Welcome everyone. This is episode four of Connections, our podcast in the School of Humanities at Rice University that humanizes the humanities, tries to get dig down deep into what the humanities are and why, why scholars of the humanities do what they do and, and who they are. My guest today is Professor Lisa Bala Bonlilar, who is Associate Professor of History and the chair of our brand new Department of Transnational Asian Studies. So, Lisa, welcome. Jeff, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm thrilled you're here. We've, we've shared a lot over the years. We, we arrived roughly the same time, a few years apart. Um, so I know, I, I know bits and pieces about your background. Um, and of course, I, I, I know what you do now. Uh, and of course, I think it's all wonderful. But uh, we, need, we need to tell the audience who you are. And I don't know where to start. You can start where you want to start. Um, and, and go from go from there. Okay. Well, it, it could be a very complicated and long story. But <laughs> I, I'll cut to the chase. Um, I dropped out of school when I was 19. I'm from Michigan. I'm from Detroit, Michigan. Um, and uh, I think very much a product of my time. So growing up in the 60s and 70s, um, it's kind of a Latter-day Grand Tour attitude that a person wasn't fully educated unless they had backpacked around the world a little bit. So when I was 19, I dropped out of college and behaved probably pretty badly for a few years, moved around the country a lot, and eventually waiting tables and cooking uh, saved enough money to buy a one-way ticket to Europe um, and eventually ended up, after a myriad sketchy jobs in tourist resorts like ironing tablecloths behind a Greek diner in Mykonos and at one point, I was the nursemaid to a 90-year-old Greek woman who had dementia but played ragtime piano uh, beautifully. Um, I then eventually ended up in Turkey, fell in love with a Turkish boy, stayed for five years and opened a restaurant with him, um, which was, of course, the tipping point in some ways because it gave me a sense of a path and a direction. Two things I learned that were really important uh, were that A, um, uh, this kind of global uh, intellectual space was very important to me, um, and that B, I was deathly bored outside of academia. So when I returned to the US with my Turkish husband five years later, um, I had a child and went back to school when she was old enough to go to daycare. She was three. So, uh, went on from there. I, I found mentors. Uh, this is, was critically important to me and it's one of the reasons why I see mentoring as being central to my current position. That there were individual faculty people who said to me, look lady, you can do something. You should get a PhD. You could do something seriously interesting here. Uh, you're capable. I'd been a waitress for much of the last 15, 18 years. It was shocking to me that someone would say, look, you are intellectually engaging and very bright. and You should really take this forward. So I did go to graduate school and got a PhD in history at the age of 49, um, having raised a daughter through this. Where, where was that, Lisa? Where, where in graduate school were you? I was at Ohio State University um, because my original plan had been 
to study Ottoman history. Having lived in Turkey for years, I spoke Turkish, not fluently, but pretty well. Uh, I found Turkish history to be utterly fascinating. Um, the problem was that my real interests were in the earlier period, uh, in before the Ottomans became the kind of stable, sedentary, bureaucratic empire that they famously became. I, I was very excited by the kind of contested identities, the, the, the you know, religious confusions and complications, the interactions of, of these diverse populations in Anatolia. So the, there were very few programs in the U.S. that taught Ottoman history, and Ohio State was one of the top three. But when I arrived, the faculty that I worked with, who were very gifted, were really more interested in that bureaucratic stage, the 17th and 18th centuries, um, which I found deeply boring. <laughs> um, so, the, and the problem with doing an earlier period was the languages, of course, because at that, in that, in that 13th and 14th century and 12th century, really, that I found so compelling, you would have required uh, Greek, Persian, Arabic, Turkish, easily. I began to work with a professor there called Stephen Dale, who uh, whose interests were really in the kind of South Asian, Persian, Turkish world. And I took some classes with him, and it was an epiphany. It was the light going off. Because there, again, we could see in this 15th and 16th century uh, West Central Asian world that he inhabited, the same uh, grappling with identity and, and, uh, and devotional practices and uh, political actions and imperial presentations, all of the stuff I was very excited about in an earlier Ottoman period were present. So I finally, after years of graduate school, shifted my, um, and began to work with him um, in this Turkic-Persian 15th century. My dynasty then leads into India, which it, the north of India is conquered in 1526, and it becomes the Mughal dynasty of India. So I can track it back, and most of my work does, track it back into kind of long durée history. I go back to the period of Genghis Khan uh, to identify courtly traditions and traditions of, of princely succession, the role of women within the elite dynasty, and I pull all of those ideas forward into 16th and 17th century India and try to locate them and how they've changed and how much of it has been retained. So let's, let's back up a bit. I mean, you, early on, you, you mentioned this global intellectual space that was so important to you. And you've just ticked off about a dozen different nation states or empires that I think will leave some of us um, our heads spinning because we don't, I mean, we, we hear the Ottoman Empire thrown around, but we're not quite sure what it is. We're not quite sure how that's related. I'm speaking for myself now. Not quite sure how that's related to Persia, to Anatolia. Now we're talking about Northern India, Central Asia. I mean, you're literally all over the map here. I mean, you're, you're, you're inhabiting this kind of Central Asian um, geography, but can you, can you say something about that? I mean, can you give us a sense of those those cultures and 
And this will eventually get us, I think, to this notion of the transnational, which is so important, so important to what, what we do in the new department. But can you define some of those terms for those of us who, who aren't aware? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, the point is that it, although it sounds as though I'm throwing a lot of random uh, communities and empires out there, in fact, there is a, a kind of continuity. There is a narrative that ties them together. So we know that in, in the ancient period, West Asia was pretty much a Persianate space. Um, so Persian, Indo-European Persian languages. Um, and of course, we know of the uh, centuries of Persian imperial tradition that inhabited West Asia. Um, so that is a kind of native ground that we start with. Beginning in about the fifth or sixth centuries, in an age of Turkish empire across Asia. And the Turks, of course, are from originally the region, which is probably um, uh, Outer Mongolia originally. The Turkish migrations start moving to the West. So by the 10th century, West Asia has become very much a Persian-Turkish uh, milieu. Of course, 7th century, Arab invasions, so we have conversion to Islam, um, which is over a period of time kind of naturally occurring. So when the Mongols arrive in the 13th century and they invade into West Asia, this is the scene of the most extraordinary uh, Mongol devastation and violence. This is when um, entire cities are razed to the ground and populations destroyed. Um, and it becomes Turkish, I mean, I'm sorry, Mongol territory until um, the later 14th century. Um, so what was a Turkish-Persian milieu has not really become Mongolized because the, the actual migration of Mongols is not very much. But the devastation caused by the Mongols has created a really sharp split in the way these populations uh, view rulership, um, but in particular uh, religion and devotional practices. So it is in this post-Mongol world that we see Turkish and Persian populations in this region cre creating new imperial entities across West Asia that reflect this post-Mongol uh, kind of radicalism. The Ottomans are a Turkish group who make their way to Anatolia. Their origins are not completely clear. It's, it's contested. But most assume that it's a Turkish tribal group that moved into Anatolia ahead of the Mongol invasions. Uh, so, so that's where the Ottoman Empire will be, will be founded and expand. Um, this Mongol West Asian world uh, becomes known as the Ilkhanate, the secondary Khanate, um, and heavily influenced by Persian traditions and Persian ideas and aesthetics. Uh, we could wax poetical talking about the artwork they will produce. They develop a really sophisticated courtly culture based in large, uh, in, a, in a large way on these Persian pre-existing ideas of patronage of the arts as a mandate uh, of kingship. 
um, that territory will then produce a new Central Asian warlord um, in the late 14th century, whose name is Timur, known in the West as Tamerlane. He is of Turkish descent, but he is the inheritor of both this Mongol West Asian tradition and this Turco-Persian cultural. Uh, is he some? Is he some relationship to Genghis Khan? He he is not. Um, later, people will argue that he must have been, but of course, had he been. That would have been a really important uh, argument for his own legitimacy that he does not make. His, his Turkic ancestors, though, were closely affiliated with the Chagatayid Khanate. Chagatay was one of the sons of Genghis Khan, who will rule the, the region uh, of Central Asia. So Timur Barlas of uh, his Turkic family um, is affiliated with the Chagatayid Mongols. When Timur is struggling to seize a territory and create his own empire, he's very ambitious. And look, there's a long history of Turkish empire building, as well as Persian. Um, he will play off this uh, Mongol connection in really interesting ways that really do seem to prove that he's not a direct descendant. What he does is marry women of the lineage of Genghis Khan, and he takes the title Guregen, or Kuregan, which means the son-in-law. Now look, it's generations after the death of Genghis Khan, but he's going to use these political marriages to argue for his legitimate sovereignty. And, and two, this gives us a window into how women among the elites of the Turco-Mongol world uh, offer a political role. They're allowed to participate politically because their own individual lineages carry charismatic power. Can I, let me, let me just ask a, um, a sort of meta question here. I mean, you know, having cut my teeth on, on uh, um, colonial India and, and reading a lot of post-colonial theory, we often associate colonialism or empire with Europe and, and England. Um, but this is clearly not, not the whole truth. Uh, it, it sounds like this entire history is really just a series of empires and colonial or colonizing activities one after the other. And it doesn't sound like Genghis Khan or the Mongolian invasion was particularly peaceful or, um, or diplomatic, let us say. Um, I mean, is that fair? In part, yes. I mean, I'm never going to argue that Genghis Khan's invasion was peaceful. Um, it's, not, it's not a criticism of that. I mean, you're, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a global statement about what it sounds to me like is the history of human civilizations in that part of the world, which is one empire after another, essentially. I think you could say one goddamn empire after another. Yeah, yeah well, really I, I did can. not say that. You said that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the point is that a lot of these demographic movements are just natural, non-invasive or, or non-empire um, building efforts, right? We, we see tribal peoples moving across Asia from, for time immemorial, often to the West, right? Um, driven by a lot of factors. Uh, but we will see across all of history 
the rise of these really ambitious empire builders again and again and again in the Turkish world and in the Mongol world. You know, the Turks unified almost all of Asia uh, in the fifth century under the Gök Turks. And this is when we see most of that demographic shift to the West because there was something of a Pax Turkica, we could almost say, uh, that allowed for uh, free movement. But, but empire buildings is hardwired into um, these pre-modern uh, peoples. I don't want to identify it as an ethnic-religious hardwiring at all, but that there, but there are opportunities, there are potentials, uh, and they are seized upon by generation after generation of Persian and Turkic and Mongol peoples across Asia. Oh, Chinese, of course, as well. So yes, we, we in the West like to perceive a certain kind of British model for empire. In fact, the British model is, um, is not representative of what has gone on earlier. Uh, keeping in mind the Mongol Empire itself, starting in the 13th century, is the largest contiguous land empire in world history to this day. Um, and rulership over the empire is driven by a lot of mitigating factors. You know, once you use your armies and to impose your political will on a new territory, we're talking empire, not kingdom. So we're immediately uh, realizing that the subject population probably speaks multiple languages, uh, uh, practices multiple religions, there's a wide variety of uh, cultural and social um, performances, backgrounds. So how do you rule something that diverse and that complex over vast territories? So what I'm interested in when we look at empires, how you create kind of unifying narratives that A, justify sovereignty, but B, pull the population into a shared perhaps ideological support for this project. It's never very sustainable, and the British didn't find it any more sustainable than anybody else does. But you can't just impose military might and assume you have an empire. That has to be backed up by strategies of unification, which the Mongols were really adept at. So while we could talk about the violence the extraordinary violence that was theatrical, it was performative, it served a purpose. But I also would argue that it becomes addictive. They can't any longer stop at some point. But once that phase has passed, the next generations inherit this massive landscape inhabited by extraordinarily diverse peoples. They immediately pivot to creating ideologies of unification. Much of that is played out in religion. A lot of it, though, is also played out through the arts, which is why I think any really good historian has to be at least attentive to, to art historical practices. So you're, we're moving kind of naturally into northern India now and the, the, Mughal, um, the Mughal kings or, or emperors and, and their use of art and their use of what we might even call comparative religion uh, under Akbar. 
to, to justify rule and to unify the empire, essentially. So can, can you speak to those? Can you speak to that history? You've already told us, what, 1526, you said um, the, the Mughals invade this part of, or they, they come in violently, or they come, how do they come in exactly? Well, these are the direct descendants of Timur. So that's the connection there. So they identify as Turkish, but the Timurid successors had intermarried with the Genghis Khanid successors. So by the time they arrive in India, they're very much a Turco-Mongol dynasty. They're coming in in 1526 militarily, right? They've been driven out of their homeland in the region of what they call Mawaranar, which we call um, Transoxiana, which, which is now Uzbekistan, the land between the two great rivers. Um, there's a new Mongol uh, invading force that has come in from the Russian steppes. They will become known as the Uzbeks. They will drive the Timurids out of their traditional homeland. Um, the Timurids are disunified. They're kind of a mess at this point. Uh, this is late 15th, early 16th century. Eventually, one of the Timurid princes manages to conquer a little territory around Kabul in Afghanistan. He becomes the central uh, refuge for the fleeing Timurid elites. But they're all used to a lot of wealth and power. They're all greedy for territory. He has to push into other lands in order to support this population. Of course, he's very ambitious also. His name is Zahir Adin Muhammad Babur. So Babur eventually decides to expand to invade into um, the Punjab in order to uh, accumulate the wealth and, and land that he needs to support this Timurid refugee population. So it is a wave of invasion, uh, recognizing, of course, that this whole region of South Asia has been ruled since the 11th or 12th century by Muslim kings of Turkish and Afghani descent. So. We are not coming into a bastion of Hindu kingship for the most part, although the Rajput kingdoms had retained independence through this period. So Babur has got to negotiate both a pre-existing Muslim Turco-Afghani ruling elite and the Rajput ruling elite. Um, he is uh, uh, successful in attacking, seizing territory. He, pushes right down towards Agra and Delhi almost immediately. Um, he's lucky because he's not actually a very gifted military leader. He's had tons of failure, but he's coming in a moment when the Delhi Sultanate, so-called, um, has just gone through a succession and is relatively weak. He seizes the land and he writes a letter to his uh, family in Kabul and says, look, God has given us Hindustan come and enjoy it with me. Let's all come here. He doesn't like India. He hates the weather. He hates the culture. He's complaining that you know, there are no good baths, there are no good melons. But he recognizes, too, that there's the potential for extreme wealth here. So eventually, his community moves down into India, and he spends the next four years putting out uh, rebellion, reinforcing power, uh, and then dies. His son inherits. It's very complicated, but they continue to struggle. At one point, they're driven out again. They come back. The grandson of Babur is Akbar, 
So his father will lose the empire and regain it and die within a year when Akbar is only 13 years old. So Akbar inherits as the oldest son this region of Afghanistan and northern India. It's an extremely fragile and vulnerable state. He has a, an ally, a Persian um, supporter um, who, who helps him, an adult man. Uh, and he manages, he's very gifted obviously, manages to, to reinforce control over these territories and expand. So Akbar then has inherited all of these ruling and intellectual and aesthetic traditions from his ancestors who framed it as their kind of raison d'etre. Babur's interest was always in recreating a neo-Timurid court wherever he was, which means patronage of the arts, uh, lots of alcohol, lots of poetry, imperial gardens. Right? It's a very um, kind of aesthetic culture, imperial culture. He is insistent on imposing that in his northern Indian territories. This is the inheritance that the Mughals will maintain. So Akbar is inheriting this kind of intellectual and cultural package, which is inclusive of a strain of political and intellectual thought that will in many ways drive the next generations of Mughal rule in what is essentially Hindu India. Um, affected by a couple of major kind of literary collections. One is, of course, um, writings in West Asia by political theorists in the 13th and 14th century, the dominant one being Nasir ad-Din Tusi, who makes the argument as a, um, an intellectual elite uh, in the 13th century that the, the, a Muslim king has the single goal of making his subjects happy and that it is not important that he impose religion on them. In fact, he should not. Nasir ad-Din Tusi's writings are very popular among the Timurid elites. They come into India with the Mughals. In addition to that, of course, perhaps most fundamentally, we have this post-Mongol uh, explosion of Sufi thought in West Central Asia, um, which in this period is grounded by uh, a large variety of orders. Um, and these are Muslim devotionals whose primary motive is unity with God through a variety of practices. They span a spectrum from what we call sober to ecstatic or drunken. So the sober end of the Sufi spectrum, uh, for example, represented by the Naqshbandi Sufi order that come into India with the Mughals, uh, everything is very austere. Uh, the, the goal of the Naqshbandi is to uh, remember God in their heart at all times, but no performative devotional behaviors. The dominant Sufi order in northern India when the Mughals arrive is the Chishti order. The Mughals recognize their power. When Babur comes to Delhi, one of the first acts he performs is a circumambulation of the uh, shrines of the Chishti sheikhs. The Chishti order is known as ecstatic. Uh, its devotional practices are 
um, performative, chanting, dancing. The key to the Chishtis and other Sufi orders um, in this period is that they follow um, a kind of intellectual tradition of, of the oneness of God. There's the doctrine of love, right? That God is a loving God and that your relationship with God is passionate and adoring and reciprocal. There's the doctrine of fana, which means the goal of, of this connection with the deity is complete personal annihilation within God. And perhaps most importantly is the doctrine of oneness, wadatu wujud, which argues that, in fact, there is no reality but the reality of God, and we are merely shadows within this great Godhead. When, you, when your Sufi order uh, expands to believe that everything is God and everything is within God, then religious identity is increasingly marginalized. What becomes central is piety and devotion. So we can see now Akbar having inherited this intellectual thought. It's been going on for a long time, and it's not, of course, unique to the Timurids. Uh, Ibn al-Arabi, 12th century Spain, is the one who describes the doctrine of oneness and writes poetry that says, Things like, you know, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a Muslim, I'm simply a devotee of God. Right? This is already well entrenched. This is the stuff Akbar is inheriting, and he thrives on it. So we see him as a seeker after uh, spiritual connections, right? He definitely is driven to pursue these sets of ideas. So there's, there's a kind of, if I can just translator comment on it. There's, there's a kind of mystical theology here of religious pluralism in which religious identity is really secondary and this metaphysical oneness is of course primary and this then allows particularly Akbar um, to look at religious identity in his, his empire in, in different terms really than, than just some people to convert say. Can you, um, Lisa, we're going we're gonna to have to get, we, we got to, I, I, what the question I immediately, I want to get to really quickly is, this doesn't sound like Detroit, Michigan to me, you know, and how, how this girl from Detroit, Michigan got to Sufi theology in, you know, 16th century North India. I mean, that's an extraordinary journey. Um, but I want to ask you one, one little detail first, and, and it's about Akbar, and it's the story of him on a tiger hunt. And, and something happens to him on this tiger hunt, and he comes back and he founds essentially a college of comparative religion. Do you have any, do you have any stuff on that for me, or is that, is, that just, is that just a meme that floats around, or is, or is there something to that? Well, in terms of the tiger hunt and the fact that he nearly dies, that seems to have been a true story. He may have used that as a kind of pivotal moment in making his argument, but he's already been on this path of discovery, spiritual discovery. He's curious, he's interested. He has an amanuensis, Abul Fazl, who writes all of this down with him, in collaboration with him, so we have real insight. And so what he does is, as you say, he, he establishes an institution of comparative religion. He has Jain scholars, he has uh, Brahmanical scholars, he has um, 
you know, ascetics of various religions. He has Jesuits. He has Shia scholars, Sunni scholars, conservative legalists, um, wild and shishti sheikhs, all in his royal court. And he opens it up and says, you know, here are some questions. Will you discuss this for me? And so we have a tradition that evolves called the Majlis in the evenings where they have these community conversations. Several of the communities represented in these conversations leave letters and memoirs, so we have a lot of evidence, in particular the Jesuits. Um, but, but we can go back a little bit if we're talking long durée, right? His ancestor in Mongolia, the great Khan Monke of the Mongol Empire, who is a um, grandson of Genghis Khan through his son Tolui, Monke does the same thing in the royal court of Karakoram. And we have European visitors to that court who describe these wide-ranging uh, conversations about religion that are driven entirely by a desire for spiritual culmination, but also just extraordinary intellectual curiosity. It does run through the dynasty. So Akbar will do this. Uh, he, he founds something we call Din Ilahi, um, which 20th century scholars would like to argue is a new religion. And nowadays, we really don't uh, see it in that way at all. He never moves away from his Muslim identity. He will always assure his followers that he is a Muslim. Um, Asfar Mawin, who teaches at UT uh, Austin in the religious studies department, but is a trained historian, describes Akbar as a bricaleur, someone who takes bits and pieces from a variety of sources and assembles them for, to his own liking. So while he identifies as a Muslim, he will adopt practices from all of these other religions, starting every morning with uh, the dawn and standing outside and worshiping the sun. This is not like sun worship. This is God worship, the sun representing the beauty and power of God. So Lisa, this is what today, you know, people would make fun of as new age. You know, I is... often refer to the Mughals as kind of the California uh, philosophers of the 16th century. Yeah, this yeah. is very new agey stuff. Yeah, it clearly is. And uh, our colleague April DeConnick has, has described early uh, Mediterranean religion as essentially ancient new age. Same kind of, same kind of bricolage that you're talking about, you know, just taking stuff that's lying around and reconstituting in a new gestalt or a new form. So, um, and it, it won't last, but even his um, great-grandson, Dara Shiko, will write, I mean, it reaches this point, his great-grandson will write a book called The Mingling of the Two Oceans in which he makes the argument that Vedanta and Sufism are, in fact, the same practice. It's the same thing. Wow, we have to talk. Let's talk later. That's a very geeky uh, topic that will take us in this other direction, but I definitely want to pursue that. Um, <laughs> let's, bring, let's bring it back home, and let's talk about um, your decision or your willingness to be convinced, I don't know which it was, to, to chair this, this, this new department of transnational Asian studies and maybe back up a, a bit further here at Rice. I mean, you know, scholars who are looking at Asian cultures for a couple decades now have located 
the, the kind of, um, there's something unique or special about scholarship at Rice on Asia. It's the transnational, right? It's this, it's this concern to trace and track and think about flows of people and ideas and arts and texts and translations. And, um, and I think that's, a lot of us feel very comfortable in that space. And it's very much a move away from this kind of Cold War nation state model, right? Where you study, you study China, or you study Japan, or you study Korea, or you study India. Or you, you study a culture, but, but, but by golly, you stick, into, you stick to the borders. <laughs> uh, which, which, of course, we're not doing here at all. I mean, just look at what you just told us. There, I don't even know where the borders are there. Um, there are no borders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're kind of we're kind of in outer space, looking down. There, there are no borders. Um, so, so talk about that, or, or tell me, or share with me. Um, and of course, in, in full confession here, I did, I did play some role in convincing you to do this, and I, I, I apologize for that, or. Or I take credit for it, whatever your story happens to be. Well, I, I did have to think hard, and you played a major role in that, um, because I had never chaired a department, of course, before. And I felt that administratively I would be okay, because I'd been director of undergraduate studies in history for years, and I realized that I really enjoyed the curricular planning and administrative work. I see myself as a kind of old hippie, but somehow I really liked the organization of it. So I wasn't afraid of that package, but it's not only, as you say, that there are no boundaries and that we're looking at flows uh, and the way culture moves across landscapes, but we're doing it in a multidisciplinary way. So this is another thing that's kind of freaky about our new department. We have social scientists and humanists working together. And I, I would make the argument, there may be some pushback on this, that we do come together in a humanist viewpoint, right? We're pushing forward our understanding as, as this, this kind of cultural space that we, in, that we inhabit here intellectually. Um, I'm a, I'm a, I love the, the feeling of the, the lack of borders and boundaries here. Um, my own work does not acknowledge political boundaries. Um, that's not because intellectually I sat up one day and said, oh, I'm going to avoid thinking of boundaries. It's simply because the Turco-Persian-Mongol world, you can tell by the way I'm trying to frame it, is a mess. It's a mess. And I love the mess. That's why I'm there. I enjoy the complete anarchy of these cultures coming into contact with each other, modifying each other, each themselves having originated in some other you know, meeting of cultures and ideas and identities back in history. There is no clarity here. You I think it's a mistake intellectually, academically, to talk about a Turkish culture or a Persian culture. It always has to encompass this vast space. You know, Lisa, you know, I often say the first, one of the earliest, maybe the most ancient form of transnationalism is religion. You know, religions do not, do not honor boundaries or cultures either, at least some types. Some do, of course. 
but um, particularly the religions you're studying are precisely those that are traveling with different communities and, and, and sometimes armies and, and sometimes on silk roads that are more about business and making fortunes than they are about conquest or, or, or conversion. Lisa, so what this conversation has done for me is really reveal your intellectual capaciousness. You know, that you, I can see that the transnational is not, it's not an arbitrary adjective attached to a department. It's, it's essentially who you are. Um, what, let me ask you this. What, how do you think about the humanities? In, do you think about them in similar terms? Or, I mean, I know the humanities is a contentious kind of riven set of disciplines as well, but it seems to me they're moving in a similar kind of direction often. Um, in the sense that they're affirming the human, you know, over, over the, the nation state or over the, 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 the culture or the religion or whatever it happens to be. Do you, do you think about the humanities as well in, in these broad terms or, or not? Are you, more, are you more thinking in terms of the discipline of history or, or now the Department of Transnational Asian Studies? I, I'm not sure I have a clear answer. I am such a, a historian in my heart. I, I know each of our disciplines within the humanities you know, frames our questions slightly differently, approaches our evidences slightly differently. So I am really trained as a historian, and my mind moves that way. But then I find myself, uh, as a scholar, looking for answers in other disciplines. So art history, literature, I, I, my students will tell you, poetry is constantly informing my teaching because through the, the kind of metaphors of poetry, we might see better how people view their place in the world and in the cosmos. Um, so I am, a, I am a humanist. I teach as a humanist. My own research is probably then, I can say, driven by a historical identity. But my teaching ever, is ever growing across the humanities, comparative religion, art history, literature, um, philosophy. It all has to come in if we are to understand the human condition or to have any inkling about how humanity has framed its relationship with the cosmic it, you know. Um, I'm an atheist, and yet this is the question that drives almost all of my work because it is such a compelling universal attribute of all of my fields of study. Well, that, yeah, that, that, to speak from the study of religion, that it doesn't have to be a god, Lisa. Uh, I mean... This, the philosophy or the theology of unity, to, to invoke your Sufis, I mean, they were theists, of course, and are theists. But a lot of people who still want to argue for some kind of cosmic it, of course, are not theists. Um, so, yeah, I, that's certainly my question, too. I want to know the cosmic it. I, I'm not... <laughs> I think the, the rest is detail, as we say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not even sure I want to know the cosmic it, but I love looking at how people are looking for the cosmic yeah, it. Yeah, okay, that's, that's fair. 
you're see That's you're fascinating. you're more humble than I am. I'm I'm like <laughs> oh screw it. I I want the it. You guys, you guys and gals can go look at the how they how people are searching for the it. I want the it. I love the Sufis. Many many years ago, I read a lot of. There was a scholar named Anne Marie Schimmel, whom you've probably read. I read a lot of her books in the seminary actually, and was very moved by them actually. I found them really beautiful. And she was very interested in poetry, you know. Yeah. Well, again, it speaks to this kind of new age thing, though. When you look at the poetry of Rumi being such a bestseller in America today, and a lot of my Muslim students and friends are outraged by it because they say, look, it just is being whitewashed. Uh, it's been turned into something that's not really representative of Islam. But it is inherently a Muslim devotional voice. So I read Persian. Most of my research is in Persian. Poetry's tough, man. You know, you really, I'm not adept enough in my Persian to argue that I can understand Hafez or Rumi. But enough of it to feel as though this, what attracts the New Age audience to this stuff is, is legitimately in the poetry that this doctrine of one informs a, a devotional piety that transcends, which is what everybody's really looking for. Yeah, of course, that, that was my interest for a couple decades of studying California counterculture. I mean, that's what, it, what I was doing. And there it was more how, how were they picking up particular ideas and practices from Hinduism and Buddhism. And... You know, there's a lot of criticism of that. On the other hand, it was clear to me that they were picking up legitimate stuff that was in the tradition, and they were selecting, though, what worked for them, you know, and what they were interested in. Just as, frankly, the Hindus or the Buddhists were pick, select cherry-picking from traditions before them that was interested in This is why I love your stuff, is it humanizes all of this, you know, in a way that that I think is true. I think... I think we're all doing this all the time. Exactly right. Exactly right. This is one of my main motives as a teacher to reinforce for my students that all of this stuff is alive. Yeah. Religion is alive. It's constantly being reimagined and, and, and it's malleable. We are always reinventing ourselves socially, spiritually. We're all, to take us back to... Um, our earlier conversation, we're all bricolures. Yeah. You know, we're all practicing bricolage. We're all um, picking up all the stuff that just happens to be lying around us and making art with it. it it's that piecing together the human experience on a, on a regular basis that keeps us. This is, why I, this is why I so love comparison, because comparison is essentially bricolage. And so the new department of Transnational Asian Studies is a bricolage. We are bricolers. We're pulling from disciplines. We're pulling from periods. We're pulling from um, schools to, to patch together how do we understand an Asia? What, what is it? And how do the peoples, the cultures, the societies, how do they find a place within the world? And how do they connect to the the great cosmos. Lisa, that's a great place to stop. <laughs>
probably should have stopped 10 minutes ago. No, no, I think, no, we got into some important stuff there. I, I really appreciate this. I really want to thank you. And of course, I'll see you again. I'll see you many, many times. So thank I you. I hope so. It's always such a treat to talk with you. And I never feel as though we actually have the time for the conversation. No, I'm we're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bother you about some of these things. You're going to be getting emails from me. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love being bothered about these kinds of ideas. All right, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jeff. That was really fun.